This is The Bayes Factor, a podcast about Bayesian statistics and other hot methodological issues in psychological research. After a bit of a delay, for which we are very sorry, we finally found the time to resume our podcast production. Here we had a very inspiring conversation with Michael Lee, who has the interesting theory that cricket is the only sport in which the players can gain weight during a match. We had an extensive discussion about Bayesian models. Among other things, we discussed generative models, model complexity, the differences and similarities between cognitive models and machine learning, and whether and when pre-registration of models is useful. All right, so we're here at the Robust Science Workshop, uh, sponsored by the NSF. Um, I'm Alex, I'm here with JP and our guest, Michael Lee. Um, So why don't we just start with, uh, Michael, tell us a bit about yourself. Uh, Where are you from? What's your past jobs? How did you get to where you are now? Uh, So I was born and raised in Adelaide in South Australia. Uh, I did a PhD at the University of Adelaide, and then for five years after that, I, I worked as a research scientist for the Australian Defence Technology Organisation, working on um, defence. Yeah, uh, uh, problems to do with within intelligence data and the analysis of intelligence data. Uh, and I enjoyed that job a lot, but at some point it became clear that that, that job was going to be for life if I didn't leave soon. Um, <laughs> uh huh. Uh, which may have been okay, but I was a little too young to make a commitment like that. So I went back to the University of Adelaide in 2001 to the psychology department and then moved to the cognitive science department at Irvine in 2006, where I've been ever since. Mm-hmm. And what was your training in, uh, in your PhD? Did you say that? Yeah, so my undergrad was in mathematical uh, sciences, but then I, I moved over to psychology and really cognitive science for, for my PhD and, and the work at uh, the Defence Place was pretty much along those lines. It was what we would now call cognitive data science, although that wasn't a phrase back then. Uh, and ever since then, I've been in cognitive psychology. Or cognitive what made science. you des- decide to go from mathematical sciences to cognitive science? What was the... Uh, I, I guess uh, as an undergraduate, I, I did all the mathematical science courses, so that was math and computing. Um, but I also did psychology because I, I found it the most interesting. Uh, and so the natural marriage of those two, I guess, is cognitive science when yeah. it comes time to be uh, an independent researcher or a semi-independent researcher. Mm. Cool. And uh, I want to ask, do you have any hobbies that you do outside of your academic life? Uh, I know you play some instrument. Yes, so I'm a terrible guitar player. I used to be a terrible drummer in a band in college, but you can't really do drumming as a hobby without a band. So, uh, so I play the guitar, and and I'm now got enough money or or time or something to have a really good guitar that I really don't deserve. So I have a lot of fun with that. What kind of guitar is it? The classical? Uh, No, so steel string. uh, The uh, the acoustic I have is a Breedlove, the cheapest of the Breedloves. I think Lindsay Buckingham is a great guitarist, and I've always wanted to be able to Travis pick like him, which I can't really do, but I pretend. Um, You mean from Fleetwood Mac? So from the Fleetwood Mac, ex ex frontman. Now I think he was just uh, just discarded for. Tom Petty's guitarist who was looking for a gig and uh, Neil Finn who was doing mm. needed something to do after Crowded House and I, and I have a, a Telecaster a GNL Telecaster for that's me. the guitar you made that's the one that I really Telecaster. like Telecaster so okay yeah. 
Um, I used to play a lot of sport, but I don't get to do so much of that any now. And in particular, cricket, I miss a lot since moving to the US. I think cricket. You were a cricket that player. That is the uh, the best game in the world by a long cricket. by a long way. Yeah. You sure? Absolutely. You understand the rules? Uh, there are no rules in cricket. Cricket has laws. It's a complicated enough Excuse game that uh, it works pretty much like a legal system. There are there mm -hmm. are mm -hmm. established laws, but they don't cover everything that could happen. So then umpires will interpret the laws in terms of case law, essentially. Okay. So they'll okay. say something like this happened in 1937 and the umpires decided this. So we'll interpret the laws and this and way. And can you appeal? And is there a Supreme Court and stuff? Uh, no, but it's, it's discussed a lot because the game goes for well, seven hours a day, six hours of which is play, 40 minutes of lunch, 20 minutes of afternoon tea. It's it's the only sport in the world where you can put on weight during a game <laughs> <laughs> and goes for five days times those seven hours and only gets a result sometimes. So there's plenty of opportunity for discussion. When I was in uh, Africa as a child, there were a lot of British at Shell, mm -hmm. and they also had, they had cricket games. Of course, South Africa is a very, very good No, team. it was Central Africa, but oh. uh, and, and the British were from UK. Um, but they played cricket because that's what you're supposed to do as a British person. Right. And I was like uh, always like wondering um, how this was interesting. And and my father always told me like, yeah, my son, you have to sit through this. But this is the most boring game in the world. No, but I didn't know was the most the boring game in the world. I it see. is fascinating. Okay. Uh, cricket. And has what, what was your position or your specialty in cricket? Uh, I, I guess uh, at lower levels of play, I, I was an all-rounder, which meant I did both. But as the levels got both higher, what? I became worse as a batsman and maintained being okay did as a bowler. Did you pitcher? Uh, a b bowler, yes. Bowler, sorry, yes. sorry. <laughs> uh, my, my brother is actually the one who has talent in the family. He's won what's called a Bradman medal, which is for the best player in South Australia of, of the whole thing and, and oh, wow. has some esteem associated with it and has a number of grade titles and things. Sort of guy who would have been... Uh, for for people calibrated to baseball, uh, a really good AAA player for 10 years who never quite made the majors or something. Thank you for making this understand. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> well. So, uh, JP, you also play guitar. Yeah. Um, yeah, we should do play tarot guitar together. Do some, some jamming, point. maybe. Yes, yes. Um, what style of guitar yeah, do you play, I wanna, Michael? I just want to ask, you yeah. uh, so, so, I'm really not a very good guitarist. Uh, I've been working my way through a a blog recently that a, a good musician put together where he decided to tab every REM song on their catalog the whole way through and that's about the level that I can handle and I, I REM's not my favorite band but I, I like mm. listening to their stuff and I can kind of play it so that's that's been the how most many chords exercise. is there in an REM song sorry how, how many chords does an REM song well, Peter Buck picks picks a lot um, so there's a lot of arpeggiated stuff and, okay. and, and a lot of mucking around but um, yeah, I'm, okay. I'm, I'm, I can do a competent impression of where Peter Buck was in 1980. <laughs> mm, cool. So uh, there's also rumors going around, which uh, you'd be happy. I mean, uh, you'd be welcome to to deny, but that you have this thing with restaurants and that you try to do something with all the restaurants in Southern California. Uh, Tell us about that, please. So, so this uh, for anybody who's ever visited Irvine, uh, it's easy to have a love relation, love hate relationship with with Irvine. It's uh, uh, University Hills, where where most of the faculty live, resembles the Truman Show. I, I think where the same things happen to the same measure on the same days, and if you try and escape 
walls of flame come up and force <laughs> you back into that. Uh, but we do try and escape. And, and so uh, Helen, my wife, and I have had a thing going for a number of years where every Saturday we go to a restaurant that neither of us has ever been to before. And usually neither of us have ever heard of before we start doing research Saturday afternoon. Um, although sometimes I accumulate lists from students or people who've lived in the area who, who might have recommendations. Uh, and it has to be within... I don't know, a 30-minute drive or something like that, but this is essentially an infinite exercise given the variety of Southern California and the sheer volume of people because uh, by the time we've tried every restaurant, which couldn't happen, new ones will have been built. Uh, mm. yeah, uh, so it's a yeah. perpetual exercise. And uh, um, growing up in Australia, we, you know, Australia originally had British food, which is inedible. So the minute migrants <laughs> arrived, initially from Italy and Greece, but much more lately from, from Southeast Asia, Malaysian, Thai, Indonesian, uh, that was the sort of food that lots of people in Australia eat all the time. Mm -hmm. And um, just north of... Wise decision. Yeah, right. On, on all sorts of grounds. Just north of uh, Irvine is, is a place called Westminster, which has the biggest collection of Vietnamese people outside Vietnam in in the world and mm. is a fascinating place to go and eat and there's also communities like Santa Ana uh, that have all sorts of good Mexican food which was unfamiliar to us so this is a, a great Saturday night tradition I, I totally relate to that we had a, when I worked at the Max Planck Institute we had a director there from Australia and uh, she always claimed to be an absolute expert on food uh, on two grounds first of all she was Australian second of all she couldn't cook so she was forced to eat in a restaurant all the time and these two reasons made her think that she was an expert on restaurants. So does that does that ring a bell? Is that something um, well, you can well, relate to? I, I feel like I'm a reasonable cook, at least of some things that I like. And actually, Helen compliments me. Helen can do a lot of uh, British Western-style food as an excellent baker. Helen's uh, a very good likes cook. Likes doing those sorts of things. That's right. She, oh, she, yeah. uh, we have some lab parties that go well and... and Part of it is the food, although most of it is the alcohol. Um, <laughs> I, I like cooking Southeast Asian things. My uncle used to live in Indonesia. I visit, visited there a lot. Uh, I worked my way through the Charmaine Solomon cookbook fairly mm. extensively and, and cool. like preparing that sort Where of stuff. Where in Indonesia did you live? Uh, I didn't live there. My uncle lived in oh. Bandung in central Java Bandung. for a long time. Okay. You know, a small town of four, I know. four million or something. I lived in Java as a kid. Oh, I didn't know this. Yeah. So and, and I visited... I went to Indonesia... A few years ago with my wife, Lara, and we actually also went to Bandung. Okay. Very, so yeah. you've experienced a Gambolan orchestra? Yes, I'm absolutely. Sorry. I'm sorry. Yes, uh, so <laughs> what, what is this? What is it? It's, uh, it's, uh, it's the Indonesian version of a xylophone, what yeah, do you call something it? like that. It's a real tourist trap, the sort of thing where the tour bus shuffles you in to listen to the Gambolan yeah. orchestra before there's an exit through the gift shop opportunity. And, and uh -huh. The Gambolan is the only uh -huh. instrument, together with a wooden flute, where just one note can already be out of tune. <laughs> okay. <laughs> mm. So the mostly you need at least two notes to get out of tune, but this is an instrument where just one is sufficient. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Interesting. Hmm. Uh, well, maybe we should uh, ask the meat of the question of this interview, which I really want to know. Um, so a few of the guests that we've had on so far, when we asked them, when was the first time you heard about Bayesian statistics or... Who really got you into practicing Bayesian statistics? They say your name. Yeah, Michael. exactly. No, we want to go to the um, root. And how did you yeah. get into this? When did you learn about it? Was it at the army or? Uh, it, it, it would have been. Um, but I actually thought about this because uh, having listened to some of your podcasts, I know you always ask this question. I, I'm not quite sure. I'm sure the Myung and Pitt, I think 97... Yeah, uh, I'm get. I don't actually remember. Was it 
Memory and Cognition, one of the Psychonomic Society journals, that they published something that was uh, an Occam's Razor paper on fit and complexity. And I remember that being very influential. So if, if that wasn't the first time I heard about it, it was certainly the first time that I decided to do something about it and you know yeah. go and use it in my own research and un understand the details of things. So was this a pit that might have been a young guy that worked at the Max Planck Institute for a while? Uh, no, it's Mark Pitt from Ohio yes. State who was here to Max Planck. I, I think I don't he was know. a so visitor. I know Mark from Ohio State because I did. He was a very there. wild guy, uh, uh, really wild in the sense of wild, uh, partying and stuff. And he um, he gave once a talk, and I think that was actually the first time I heard of Bayes because he had these weird statistical methods that he was talking about. Could that have been Mark Pitt? It doesn't sound right, but I couldn't okay. prove that it's not true. Maybe there are two pits here because uh, yeah, absolutely, or at uh, least two. Mark, Mark works in um, in in some sort of s his content area is not one that overlaps with anything that I do. Some sort of speech or sound or, or language area. Must okay. have been so him. Maybe yes, must right. have been him. Wow. Um, but it, w it you know he was collaborating with uh, then Inje now Jame Young at, at Ohio State okay. who was. Uh, was and continued to bring a whole lot of these Bayesian ideas into okay. statistics. So, uh, had I only known at the time, yeah, Jay was an early friend and supporter of mine. Invited me to some conferences in the U.S. and and really mm -hmm. helped me get going in some of this wow. stuff. And what appealed to you about it? Uh, I think think uh, like a lot of people who are kind of mathematically okay in psychology, I always found statistics confusing. The statistics I was taught as an undergrad it seemed to be a, a random grab bag of things that I could implement that way if you told me, but if, if there was some yeah. overarching principle or rationale, uh, then, then I couldn't work out what it was. And then s suddenly it seemed like there was something principled in terms of probability theory that I thought I could execute. <laughs> uh, but, but also there was a very practical goal of that initial paper, which was to point out that complexity mattered. That might seem kind of obvious now, but it there were, there in were the a age lot of, of things. machine learning, big models, it seems obvious, but right, then, and it, and it's permeated a whole lot of psychology. But uh, it was right. a relatively new idea. You know, AIC and BIC were not things that were routinely used, although you could find instances of them. But it wasn't part of the the routine picking up of a journal or, or listening to a series of conference talks. And so the idea that complexity mattered made a whole lot of sense to me. And and so some of it was just through this is definitely something that needs to be done in modeling and if Bayes is the way to do it then so be it. So a, a combination of those two things. That's interesting when you say complexity because I remember being on a, a mathematical psychology event. I think uh, EJ did later, he's younger than me, later did the same thing. It was like a European event where uh, students uh, interested in mathematics psychology would go to a place in Europe, usually Germany, uh, and then be in instructed by some geeks. And one of the uh, courses we did was modeling, and it was by Dirk Forberg, and I think he was a frequentist. I'm pretty sure he was a frequentist. And he basically taught us the idea that uh, complexity is only expressed as degrees of freedom. Right. So if you have one, 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 data point, one, one parameter for every data point, you would have the same number of data points at the degree of freedom, so that's sort of the worst-case scenario. And then every 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 parameter you have less than the number of data points counts, and that's how you do your chi-square test and stuff like that. Right. That's the th kind of modeling that you didn't mean, I guess, um, with complexity. It's not just the number of degrees of freedom, right? Well, just just the idea that complexity matters at all was what I was getting out of that. And, and honestly, although I wasn't thinking of it in terms of degrees of freedom, those early approximations that we used, and are still used today, like AICs and BICs, equate 
the complexity of a model with a count of the number of parameters. And mm -hmm. so okay. I now understand much better that, that that's at best an approximation um, and, mm -hmm. and can be inadequate or, or even strange in circumstances for which the approximation doesn't hold in hierarchical models, which came later, at least in my development, but I think also in cognitive science and Bayesian methods more generally, hierarchical models are a great example because uh, they have more parameters. You start adding parameters at the hierarchical level, means and variances at the group level from which the individual parameters still exist, uh, but you've made the model a whole lot simpler. You've constrained the individual parameters, you've yeah. added theory, you've added assumptions, so your parameter count has gone up, but your model has become simpler. And so now that sort of approximation doesn't yes. work at all. No. Right, so there's more to complexity than just how many parameters go into the model there's functional complexity almost right I, I mean i think the simplest way to think about it is that complexity is the number of things a model could predict which and then you could try and make that precise but it but it's uh, you know imagine the example of betting on who's going to win the world cup which is going to come up soon enough yeah, even though america's not in it to my great delight um <laughs> yeah I, I share this delight yeah <laughs> and, and australia is even though we entirely don't deserve to be there but that's another story um so so somebody who bets on every team in the world cup has made a very complicated set of predictions and you shouldn't value those those predictions and they will get very low return on their bets when the results come in somebody who bets on just a couple of teams if one of them wins you believe in their predictions and so mm -hmm. i think thinking of models as making predictions about data and the fewer predictions they make uh, the simpler the model is is the right way to think about it of course the predictions that a model makes vary and they vary by uh, by turning the knobs that we call parameters on a model and so the number of knobs may sometimes be an indicator of how many predictions or how far you can turn the knobs like the range or the patterns of relationship between the knobs so that yeah. if two knobs are highly correlated then then turning them both is actually only like turning one right. and so there's a functional form of complexity as well but all of this just plays out in the extent of the predictions that a model makes and I think that's uh, the most intuitive way to think about complexity. Mm. So if, if I may insert an unscripted question that I just think of. So, when uh, did you hear our podcast with EJ? I did. Yeah. So he was describing this situation that he was in a room uh, where you were. He was just you know, sort of brainstorming. Well, maybe it's like this, and that you would sort of online type in a um, probably a Jags or a Bugs yeah, Wind. It was, it was Windbugs back Wind bugs, the time. Yeah. yeah. Uh, model, and he was really impressed by the fact that you would just like sort of while he was. Um, producing ideas would implement the model right away. What is your memory of that experience? Yeah, so EJ's account was, I mean, it was favorable to me, so I'll, I'll endorse it as reasonably <laughs> accurate. <laughs> um, but yeah, I do, I do yes, remember the room and I do remember doing it. I hadn't been at Irvine all that long, maybe six months, and you had that nice patch that academics sometimes get where when you've arrived at a new institution it's a little bit like a semi-sabbatical you're, you're not picking up big administrative roles or students mm -hmm. they haven't made you teach a whole lot yet I arrived at a slightly unusual time of year too so I, I really had this little window and it was during that that I started to figure out wind bugs which had been around a little while but now there was time to sit down and figure out how to make these graphical models work and to do things and, and you know to those who have experienced bugs since um, there are, there are pretty interesting models that you can implement in just a few lines as, right. as long as you've got some statistical clarity on what it is and that you you're trying to do. And, and EJ was proposing some pretty simple models as he was philosophizing in, in the office. So uh, I was, and he exaggerates a little bit, I was starting to implement them. And mm -hmm. uh, that later, that was published 
you know, 20 years later or something but after still, a it, tortuous review process. So right. it did turn on uh, EJ to Bayesian work. Well, well, no, but EJ was already doing Bayesian work yeah, and so had I for a number of time. But I think the graphical model yeah. idea and, and particularly the software that supported it was a, a really key thing for me, fully throwing myself in and being able to do a whole lot of things, take on bespoke modeling problems because not having to derive analytical results, not having to... Uh, custom build samplers uh, gives you enormous capacity to explore models uh, and build models and test models and, and right. sort of make all of your work Bayesian because it's no slower and it may even be quicker than a simple model fit or something that might be the alternative so approach. So can you explain in a, a few words what you mean when you say a graphical model? So yeah, graphical models are a formalism developed in, in computer science and machine learning that are you know a, a language for expressing probabilistic generative models. And I guess that means, um, for a psychologist, you could think of it as something that could be a participant in your task. So it generates a probability that a person will press one button or the other as they go through an experiment. Um, and so you're specifying the process that generates data. And, and the formalism by which you express it takes the form of a graph. So you have a sequence of steps and kind of cognition flows from the top of the graph to the bottom and the bottom would be the action that produces the behavior. But you now suggest that it actually implements cognition, but it actually just generates data, right? It's not a, an actual process in the brain that it models. Uh, well, it could be a model of such a process, yeah. which means an approximation or an abstraction that's useful in some way. So yeah, it, it uh, I certainly wouldn't say in the brain, I would say in the mind, uh, and I would say that it's it, it can model something that the mind does. So this might be a very simple abstraction or approximation, but I think that's the goal. And, and I think the great thing about this is if you've got something that can produce behavior, then what Bayesian statistics gives you is uh, you, you're saying, this is how I think behavior would get there. Uh, now that I've seen the behavior that people actually produce, the results of your experiment, we can condition on that, we can know that, and then infer what the unknown properties of this graphical model process must have looked like, what the latent things like somebody's short-term memory capacity that we didn't know exactly, what must that have been to have produced the behavior? So essentially, which ones are consistent with the behavior observed? Right. It's, yeah. Yeah, it, again, going back to tuning the knobs and the predictions, right. you can think of working memory capacity as being a knob that could be tuned to different values. At different values, it makes different predictions. But now you've seen the data, so you know what the right prediction was. You know who won the World Cup. Right. Now you can say what values of those knobs would have been the probable values to have produced that outcome, and, and that's the Bayesian inference, the Bayesian posterior distribution. So there's seems to be a difference between these graphical models that you're implementing for models of cognition versus maybe a model that we might use for an analysis of our routine data like a t-test or ANOVA. Do you see a difference between these types of models? Well, so I think, the, I think they're the same in the sense that they're both uh, probabilistic models, they're both statistical models. I think the key difference is that the, the psychological model, the graphical model, the cognitive model is making some sort of commitment to those processes having a psychological interpretation and to the parameters having a psychological interpretation. Some semantic Right, meaning. so it's not a regression weight, the knob, it's a short-term memory capacity right. or something like that. And the processes that flow for, forward are not linear combination as in regression, but reading items from memory and making a decision with some sort of bias or something right. like that. So I think it's not so much in the mechanics. I think Bayesian statistics applies 
pretty much in the same ways to both. I think it's in the ability to interpret or explain things in terms of uh, an interpretable uh, content field model. And so if you were going to try to predict behavior and you were to build one of these cognitive models for the process and some computer scientist built a black box machine learning model, would you be able to compete with them in, in terms of prediction? If it, the model's good it, or? It's a, it's a really interesting question. So, so the honest answer at the moment is, is no. Uh, and and there are, there's papers and literature on this. You know, machine learning uses discriminative uh, methods and, and there are sort of some results that unless your, your generative model, unless your graphical model is exactly what people do, the discriminative method can beat you because it's trying to solve a simpler problem of prediction. It's not trying to solve the hard problem of understand everything that's going on in the mind and then, by the way, predict some data. Yeah, right. Um, uh, but my, my earnest hope, and I don't know whether it's a conviction, but my earnest hope is in the same way that uh, fields that are good at forecasting and prediction, like like meteorology, improve significantly. But it improved partly because it gets regular feedback, but partly because the theory of meteorological systems is a guiding theory that can be used to be built into models. So ultimately, the hope would be that whatever is predicting Netflix ratings or so on using machine learning algorithms now ought to be improved by something that has cognitive theory about how People evaluate aesthetic stimuli like movies and make responses and so on. But but I couldn't give you a good demonstration of, of that bearing fruit. I, I think it's an avenue worth pursuing. Um, what the cognitive models certainly do have, even if they fall short of machine learning methods in prediction, uh, is that interpretability or describability right. or a reason for trust. And this has become an issue for... Um, deep neural net and, and machine learning people where you might have something that diagnoses cancer brilliantly, uh, but then no it tells you you have cancer and all you can say is, well, you've got connection weights of 1.1 and 3.2. Yeah, yeah. um, some sort of account of it, it's this marking on, on the scan or these blood level readings or this pattern of change in I something. I actually read some paper where people were then trying to do classical statistical analysis on the weights to, to actually retroactively, by the way, they were frequent analysis, which is kind of amusing, but uh, to, to, to sort of like take then the model that predicts the right data and infer from the model right. weights. I, I've also seen some work like this. So this is almost cognitive neuroscience without having to do fMRI. Your deep neural <laughs> yes. network becomes the yes. uninter un un ununderstood yeah. brain-like so structure you could that you want to do, and then you end up doing then, cognitive like modeling. It's in this area of the state space that it happens. Yeah. Uh, and in some ways, this is you, you can trace almost any idea back, but some of the things in the parallel distributed processing work, the early connectionist models that McClelland and Rommelhart did, and maybe even earlier than that, but certainly then in Tim Rogers' work, they were effectively doing that they were they were looking at values that the hidden units took inside networks that did some sort of semantic learning and they were applying methods like multi-dimensional scaling yeah. that are cognitive modeling type analyses to understand the representational yeah. it does have a feeling the network of moving backwards actually but um, you know moving away from the actual explanation a little bit but no, but nobody could doubt what deep neural nets and machine learning algorithms have done for you know sort of every app you use on your smartphone that impresses mm. you though. yeah so true so when you build these models you since you're modeling such a complicated process and such it's very context dependent of course so you wouldn't use a sort of default structure to like a just a run-of-the-mill model like so for example in in some of the advocation for bayesian methods is um, here we are going to replace your regular t-test with a bayesian t-test 
so you get all the benefits of bays um, and if you're not really comfortable with what to do maybe you just slap on one of these default basic priors um, is is that something that you would do as a, a cognitive modeler or how would you do you sort of have a philosophy that you need to construct informative priors or can you do can you get by with uh more default uh, baseline priors maybe well so so i don't think that question needs to be just about priors i think it could equally well be about likelihoods you know the the, the reason data model. the reason statisticians mm -hmm. you by default go to a generalized linear model is that there's a rich history of that being a reasonably successful approach so there isn't anything that ingrained in cognitive modeling but there are successful models of choice response time or categorization or biased decision making or um, short-term memory or, or whatever. So there are certainly things in the literature you could go to to use as a reasonable first model of how this worked. Um, the priors, of course, is a slower thing because this is the thing that's new to Bayesian uh, research. And Wolf van Pommel, who's a, a colleague, collaborator, good friend uh, from Leuven, uh, he and I just wrote a paper for a special issue in, in Psychonomic Bulletin Review where we talked about, where we argued for informative priors and by informative we really mean corresponding to the information you have so that in the same way you would develop a likelihood to correspond to whatever theoretical assumptions you want to make that is the processes that you think generated the data uh, our perspective is that um, the parameters that control those processes the psychological variables like short-term memory working memory capacity or whatever you you should also construct priors that say what values of those are likely and unlikely based upon theory based upon past data based upon assumption based upon logical constraints whatever information you can bring to bear and, and part of the argument for that is the two of them go together to make predictions and so you want your predictions to be following the theoretical assumptions and and constrained by the previous literature in sync that there's nothing new about constructing a prior that you haven't already encountered in trying to construct a likelihood it's a it's a creative act to be a creative act to be evaluated against data in the same way i think this is entirely reasonable but i do have to ask in my journalistic role um sort of from the other perspective uh you may have followed or have been aware of the uh, um, discussion on social media and other places about bayesian versus frequent statistics and one of the major complaints about what you just said by frequentist if i may try to channel them for a second is but that sounds awfully subjective yes yes uh, and i was just curious what your answer what your best answer is to people who genuinely believe that you're just cheating by having a prior right so the, these answers aren't from me these are just ones i, I believe okay. that that were generated by others and I, th I think there's there's two parts to the answer one part to the answer is generating a likelihood is subjective there's there's nothing that says that so when you say likelihood uh, a listener might not know what that means right that's the first point good um let, let's put it this way so so if if an econometrician or somebody takes some standard regression model or a psychologist takes some standard data analysis method uh, they feel like they didn't have any choice in that or that they didn't do anything very subjective or anything wrong because there's 100 years of literature that says that that's the thing you do but the first person who did it kind of made it up and it just doesn't <laughs> feel subjective because everybody's been doing it for right. a long time priors are a bad uh, are, are a brand new thing and so it's hard to find that hundred year tradition that fools you into thinking that you're not doing something subjective so just as the choice of model and really uh, that's what i mean by likelihood I, in one sense I, I do agree that the the choice of likelihood is 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 also subjective and this is something that is that 
many frequenters would be very upset about what they heard it, but that's fine. Uh, but I do want to sort of push it a little bit further here in my role as uh, devil's advocate, which is you could say that your invoking of the likelihood function is a bit like saying, but Hillary's emails. Yes. So so the second part of my answer, but, <laughs> but maybe this is even worse. I don't know what's worse than Hillary's emails. Maybe this is Benghazi. Um, <laughs> is, is that subjectivists, uh, frequentists are the last people to accuse anybody of being subjective you know they, they base probability on limiting frequencies that they could never observe they uh, condition on data that were never observed in fact you know to calculate a p-value you have to imagine an infinite number of data sets that never actually happened and this is sort of the ultimate in data fabrication I think in every single p-value and, and and then you could there's no principles it, for it the nature of the estimators of this, uh, and so on like, these people need to get their own house in order before they accuse anybody else of being subjective it, it sort of reminds me of this uh, uh, silly argument that uh, the replicability project for philosophers where they try to replicate thought experiments right right, right. yeah Okay, I, so I, I think uh, I think the other maybe the more constructive way to say it is that you shouldn't confuse subjective with arbitrary. I think arbitrary is a problem. Sub subjective is when you make a set of assumptions, you make those assumptions clear, and then you see what follows from those assumptions. And I think that's what Bayes lets you do. So the assumptions are indeed subjective; they're a creative scientific act. I, I, I but Bayes that. has the rigor to say what follows from those assumptions. It will call you out if the model is too complicated. It will tell you if you should be uncertain what the value of this parameter is. That uncertainty certainty is preserved both in the inference about parameters and the predictions of data and the comparison of models so preserved throughout the scientific inference process and True. I think that's the important bit. So that's interesting you make a distinction and I think correctly between arbitrary and subjective. I often thought that what frequentists mean when they say objective is 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 not non-arbitrary but more like everybody has the same rule to play by because you don't need to make a decision uh, you have implicit assumptions if you do a frequentist test, right. but at least it's the same for everyone. So it's like equal playing ground stuff. Yeah, so if subjective means two, two cognitive modelers could approach the same research question and devise their own models that are somewhat different and reach different conclusions, then I'm perfectly comfortable with that and I don't see why they should have to develop the same model. That would, that would seem like a bad idea. Um, the, the point would be that if the if two modelers implemented the same model and applied Bayesian methods, they would reach the same conclusions. And they would have no degrees of freedom in how, once they've specified that generative model and once they've collected data, there's no degrees of freedom left. The joint posterior is what it is. Given and, a prior. And it, and it, yeah, so the model is the prior is part of the model because that okay. goes towards making the predictions. And now you've got no degrees of freedom left. Probability theory just tells you that's what follows from that. Uh, rather than pick your random estimator named after somebody, um, you know, as in an ad hoc frequentist approach that doesn't have the uh, guiding principles in probability theory. So I want to ask, um, so in publishing in, say, the mathematical psych community, clearly Bayesian methods are accepted uh, and encouraged, and many, many people use them. Um, but when you use these methods and publish them in non-specialty uh, cognitive modeling journals, I wonder what the peer review process goes like, because it, it must be foreign to many of the reviewers and the editors. Um, do you have any insight on how this? Well, well how it's, you deal it's with certainly this? got 
easier. So, so I can think of examples where it was extremely difficult to have Bayesian things published in, in content journals um, maybe 15 years ago. Um, and then it got kind of got to the point where both were okay. And then recently, and this kind of made me happy, I've seen papers rejected because they didn't take a Bayesian approach to analysis, ah. even a content modeling journal. I think it was a memory paper. Um, so, so these things are certainly changing. I, I think there are very few people, let's say in the, in the modeling world, who aren't at least aware that Bayes is a thing and probably have a suspicion that it's probably a useful thing even if it's not their thing. So I don't think there's a hostility, there might be an unfamiliarity, but a, an unfamiliarity with a constructive and open person is something that can be explained and, and worked through. So I, I, don't, I don't see any reason not to be optimistic in pursuing Bayesian approaches to bring cognitive models in contact with data as the field currently stands. Yeah, have you had any experiences? Uh, I'm thinking of one that you might have mentioned to me lately where um, you did everything in a completely Bayesian way and uh, somebody criticized you for it uh, in, in a way that you didn't think was... Uh, I, th I think I know the one that you're, you're asking about. I have about. no idea what you guys are talking about. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I, I, I had one. Um, it actually involved almost no inference, which was part of the point. But the inference that was there was certainly Bayesian, and there certainly wasn't p-value. It uh, wasn't a p-value. My, my claim is I've never been responsible for publishing a p-value, which lets me out of a couple of ones where I was forced to put it in a footnote or as an ancillary, or I was an author who wasn't really responsible for that bit and the other authors wanted to go that way. And there aren't even very many of those, but I don't think I've ever been responsible for publishing a p-value, and certainly not in this paper, but nonetheless the uh, uh, anonymous reviewer commented that it was a pity this wasn't pre-registered because they didn't know what other statistical tests I might have done and they didn't know whether to believe the p-values or not. Uh, and it seems extremely likely that this was a canned paragraph that the reviewer cuts and pastes every time they review a paper that is not pre-registered uh, without checking whether the paper actually has p-values or, or inferences <laughs> at, at all. So I guess as, as part of the battle against unthinking and suboptimal science, they cut and paste this paragraph regardless of the nature of the paper any time. It's not pre-registered. <laughs> and you didn't have a p-values no of course oh, wow no. No. So, so you were criticized for having non-pre-registered p-values they, 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 they pointed out that the lack of pre-registration made my p-values very difficult to understand and, and I, I guess not. in one sense that's true because they weren't even there <laughs> <laughs> that's great so um um I also wanted to ask you, uh, I think you just mentioned that you, at some point you moved to the to Irvine, right? And what do you teach? Uh, I've taught a number of courses since I've been there, an experimental methods lab type course. I teach a big uh, cognitive science course with maybe 250, 300 students, something Oof, like that. That's, that's, big. A, that's an overview for sort of upper division undergraduates. Mm. The moment I'm teaching at the undergraduate level an effective graphical display course, so this is um, sort of part industry you could get a job doing this because because visualizing data has become a really important skill part programming skills and part the psychology of data visualization what makes a good graph what makes for effective graphical display so i, I find that a really engaging and interesting mm. class to teach okay. it kind of mixes application and theory and skills mm. in, in a nice way that everybody agrees is an important and interesting thing to study at the graduate level I, I teach a lot of bayesian cognitive modeling surprise <laughs> surprise yeah. in fact the book that ej and i wrote came out of teaching those classes is there going to be a second edition uh ej would say 
there is, and I would say there isn't. There is, and we've been, no, EJ would say there is, and I would say there won't be, and I think we've both been in that state for five years, and I guess every year it becomes more likely I'm right. That's right, yeah. <laughs> you have a Bayesian model for that. Like every, yeah. Another year passed without a book, <laughs> so right. I upgrade my probabilities. Update my probabilities, yeah. Okay, well, that's a pity because it's a great book. I, I, um, I, I think the issue is that we're somewhere between a second volume and a second edition and neither is quite right. So, so we, we don't want to write uh, a second edition because there aren't that many problems or errata or things with, with what's errata, with what's there. Um, a second volume, though, I would like to build the first volume back a little differently and a little better, would like to revisit it. So I hope at some, day, at some point EJ and I write another book, but I don't think it will be either a second volume or addition to this one. It will just be another book on Bayesian approaches to, to cognitive modeling. Well, I uh, hope so too. Yeah. So you mentioned um, that your class on creating good graphics and visualizations might be useful when transitioning to industry. Um, I know that you have a lot of industry connections in your work, like uh, you get data sets from the website Ranker, um, and do modeling on those. How did those sorts of connections come up? And do you, do your students benefit by getting jobs with them at all, or do they want to do that? Yes, yeah, uh, so I, th I think all of the above. I've I've always really liked. I I guess it's usually called applied research, but I don't like that name. I like the idea of solution driven research, so that there's some problem out in the world, and that you identify that problem, and then you try and solve it. If if you already know how to solve it, that's great. But often solving it will require retreating back into the university environment, possibly running controlled experiments. You know, mm -hmm. solving a basic scientific problem. But once you've solved it, you know what the application is because that's where the problem came from in the first place. And actually, my dad was an applied mathematician and and used to work in exactly this mode. And I don't know whether I inherited it from him but it's something I've liked and, and always thought I was reasonably good at sort of um, taking some complicated real world problem and, and seeing what a reasonable approximation as a scientific model might work in applying it back. I think I'm better at that than basic theoretical development or experimentation or even methods. Um, so every time there's been an opportunity to talk to a company and, and Southern California and California in general has, what is it, 40% of the world's startup capital or, or, or something like that, there, there are lots of opportunities. Um, so Ranker is a company I've worked with for a while. There's a, a company called Sleeperbot that runs fantasy football leagues that I have a bunch of data from. Um, there's a, a collaborator um, involved in one of the Los Angeles sports teams. Um, we talked to the local Amazon people. Um, and I, I find a lot of my graduate students want to be cognitive data scientists. And, and it's a sweet spot and the right time to be in this sort of thing. Data science is understood, but there's a growing understanding that the cognitive part of this is really important uh, because a lot of the data that are being modeled are human behavioral data as outputs so they have this cognitive theory underneath them and uh, and almost entirely what these things are for are for people's consumption and so at both ends you have this understanding um, my most a uh, recent graduate student just got a job at Blizzard, a gaming company. There are internships going on at all sorts of places. Shunan Zhang is at Apple now. Um, I think I probably have more students placed in industry than academia at this point. Wow. Oh, that's very impressive. Um, so maybe uh, our last topic for this interview, uh, we could talk a little bit about what we've been talking about here at the Robust Science Workshop um, in terms of what, well, your group that you were uh, a part of and that I was a part of yesterday, Michael, um, <laughs> was model-based inference and 
uh, how this can be applied towards open science or what the principles of open science and robustness can bring to model-based inference and um, how this can be picked up more in the field if we think it should be. Um, could you maybe just summarize what we've been going over here? Yeah, I think it's been an interesting question. So so everybody in psychology who, who deals with empirical data has been aware of the kind of crisis of confidence in, in, in the empirical world and, and ideas of replication of and robustness and reliability and, and so on. And I guess the challenge for the, the panel has been how does that play out if mostly what you do is is take data and develop and evaluate cognitive models of those data or apply them in, in the ways I was just talking about? And, and I'm, I think it's a really good question, and I'm not sure the answers are 100% clear. I, I think some of the ideas from some of the empirical practices, um, in pre-registration and, and so on, probably can be used in some settings, like like making clear what your predictions are before you test rival cognitive models in a, in a critical test. But in other cases where you're doing something exploratory, I, I think we're kind of tracing out uh, what what the reasons are for being able to proceed with that without necessarily pre-registering, so that if you see something in the data that you think aids in model development, you know how and why can that be legitimately done uh, without some sort of pre-registration. So I think we're working out what does generalize over to uh, psychological modeling rather than straight statistical testing and what, what doesn't map over. And it's uh, been, a, been an interesting panel to work with and uh, look forward to seeing what we eventually come up with. Yeah, I saw your presentation today and I was really sorry that I wasn't in that group, to be honest. It was very interesting. Well, can you say why you think... Uh you mentioned pre-registration for these uh, model comparison or prediction settings. Um, why would that be useful um, in this application? I mean, I get it for developing a new study where you can, you know, collect extra data points and nobody would know the difference or you drop your outliers in a way that benefits you. But in specifying the model, how do you get, where does this benefit us? So I, I guess one of the reasons would just be in straight good accounting and clarity and good practices. So so if you're, if you're going to go to the effort of collecting these data, you ought to have very clear what your model predictions are. And in a Bayesian setting, for example, that would force you to think about the question of priors that we were thinking about earlier. You'd have to lay these predictions on the table so that you were making your bets on how the data were going to fall. And so it forces you to sort all of that. It might potentially inform the sorts of experiments that are likely to be the ones that tell two models apart and provide a critical test, which is obviously important. Um, and maybe maybe there are other things in, in thinking carefully about how you're going to measure the models against data, which would be a more radical idea, but maybe one that even demands more pre-registration. So if, if the way you're going to score a model once the results are in is something a little non-standard, it's not just a binary, did it match or not, or it's not just exactly what is the maximum likelihood, but it's something that emphasizes key phenomenological features of the data that you want to preserve while still valuing other agreements between the model and data. Contrast or right, but but all, but if both models do that, then the the way we'll break the tie will be their their quantitative agreement with other patterns of the data or something like that. If you're going to use these scoring rules, um, I think pre-registering that will make your results much more believable and make you think about it more carefully. You wouldn't want a situation where you could come up with this complex utility function or scoring rule after you'd seen the data um, and, some, and design that, one that favors the model that, that you would like to win. That by chance happens to favor your preferred model. Right, and yeah. in fact, one of the things that makes me most suspicious in, in 
in modeling papers is when authors change their evaluation metrics, not usually within a paper, but often paper to paper when they're testing the same phenomenon. You know, so it's always something in ending in AIC, but sometimes it's the AIC measure and then the DIC and then the BIC, <laughs> and it always seems to work out that that particular metric for those data favors the uh, approach they would like to uh -huh. win. And so that, that seems like the sort of thing that ought to be pre-registered. Yeah. I mean, I guess in evaluating your models, there is a self-serving bias that we all might implicitly uh, inject into the process, maybe. Well, you could do this triple blind as well, or quadruple blind or whatever it's called. You can have someone else, you send them model code and, and someone else evaluate two models, A and B. Right. And they're like, well, we're not going to tell you which one is which. Just tell me which, which model is better. Yeah, that, that would be an interesting approach. We talked about blinding a little bit. We actually talked about it in a slightly different context of, of when experimentalists uh, manipulate a number of conditions that are expected to s influence selectively different parameters of a model, but not let the modelers know uh, which manipulation is which in, in the data, blind that, and then uh, see whether the models can recover. And I guess by the blinding logic, this would give you more faith that the models are doing what they yeah. tend to do. There's a nice paper by Shilas uh, Dutil and, and collaborators that does something like this that mm. we included in our discussions today. Well, great. Well, thanks for being on the podcast, Michael. Yes, thank you. Pleasure. It was a really good, good um, interview. I really appreciate it. Can we go get a beer now? Let's do it. Yeah, let's go and do the informal part of the interview. You can find this podcast and all the background information mentioned in it on the Tufts HiLab website at sites.tufts.edu slash hilab slash podcast or follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at the base factor. We want to thank Sol Albert and Laura de Ruiter for their technical support, Sotaro Kita from Warwick University for generously letting us use his lab for several interviews, the Cognition and Individual Differences Lab at UC Irvine for their financial support, and Theo Fosse for creating the music for this podcast. <laughs>